before the Second World War, the women wore the dress as an everyday use. But when the world, Second World War started, we, the Greenlanders didn't have any contact with Denmark for four or five years. And they suddenly had to get all of the merchandises from the U.S. So that is when Greenland opened up and the Greenlandic women started to wear American dresses. That was the voice of Rosa Rosin, the second guest in this, the latest podcast series from Knowledge on the Nordics, podcast produced by the team behind the research dissemination website Nordics Info, with me, Nicola Whitcomb, the editor of Nordics Info. In this podcast series, we look at Greenland's art and history, and key researchers are given a chance to choose important objects or pieces of art and explain why they've been significant to them, both in their career and their lives. Our guest in this podcast, Rosa Rosin, is currently Head of Department for Language, Literature and Media at the University of Greenland, and her PhD was called Branding Through Fashion, the West Greenlandic Women's Dress as Symbol. She is a researcher and a lecturer in a variety of subjects, including Greenlandic literature, fashion, cultural movements and how these types of things play out in the media. She has also worked in various positions before coming to academia. So Rosa, thanks very much for being with me today. I'm in Copenhagen and I know you live and work in Nook in Greenland, so we're talking over Zoom. Can you just tell me a little bit about yourself to get started? My name is Rosa Nguak. Uh, everyone calls me Rosa. Um, I am from Sisimut, a smaller town than Nook with about uh, five, 6,000 uh, inhabitants. I have also lived in Nuuk for the f- past 15 years. Thanks very much. So I've asked you to pick important objects or pieces of art and explain why they've been significant to you. Uh, but I believe you've chosen just one, but a very interesting one that gives us lots to talk about. Could you please explain your item? Uh, there is one picture I, I really like. And it's the picture of uh, Dorothea and Louisa, two sisters. And the picture is from 1862 and was taken by Heinrich Johannes Rink, uh, who, who was the South Greenlandic inspector uh, back then in the 1800s. And the picture shows uh, two girls wearing pearl beads. And and they say, or Hans Lunge, uh, a Greenlandic author and artist, wrote a book in 1978 where he says that the first woman to wear the national beads or pearl beads uh, on the national costume was those two girls. Uh, and I tried to find that picture for so long. And then I finally found it in 2019. Great, really interesting. And you can see this picture on our website, Nordics Info, on the podcast page. Could you tell me a little bit more about her story? Uh, I write, I wrote about uh, Dor- Dorothea Dorothea in Greenlandic in my PhD because she was supposed to be married to a Danish man. And they, she was sent to Denmark for a year to learn how to live like a Danish woman. 
um, how to sew, how to cook, how to behave and so on. And then when she came back to Nuuk, she didn't want to marry a Dane after all. So she married a hunter from um, Sarlo instead. And we found on the, in the archives that her parents didn't attend her wedding, even though her parents were, were respectable people in Nuuk. Her father was a boatman and her mother was a midwife. So they both came from Danish families, uh, mixed with Greenlandic, of course. So I think it's part of, of some social control and, and she, she just followed her heart and wanted to marry a Greenlander and be a hunter's wife. And so this story really spoke to you out from this picture. Um, and before then, the, the Greenlandic dress hadn't included pearls. They had included pearls, but it was in the lower, lower part of the dress. Dorothea and Louisa were the first one who wore them as a necklace and the necklace just grew and grew. What sort of did the, the necklace represent or how, in what ways was it significant? In the beginning, it, it was a part of the fashion in Greenland and the girls who, who had uh, Danish parents in Greenland had the opportunity to buy, to buy more um, fashion items than the rest of this, uh, the Greenlandic population. So back then it was maybe uh, a status of wealth and, and that's, that's how the pearl beads started. But then everyone began to wear them. It, I might be making it sound more geographically isolated than it was in those days, but presumably, you know, the, the, the wares still had to arrive by ship and took quite a long time to get there and stuff. Yes, the, the Greenlandic, the Royal Greenlandic trade had uh, several stations uh, in Greenland and one of, one of them was in Nuuk and you could order uh, different fabrics, different pearl beads, colors, different things you could sew or mend. You could get some different items from, from the whalers as well. There were some several hunters, whale hunters from the Netherlands and from England, who also were among the Greenlandic Sea, where you could trade um, with seal skin or whale blubber. What does the the Greenlandic dress, or the I know you're more into, or you've researched more the West Greenlandic dress specifically? How how are they used in in modern life? Before the Second World War, the women wore the dress as an everyday use. But but when the world Second World War started, we the Greenlanders didn't have any contact with Denmark for four or five years and they suddenly had to get all of the merchandises from the US. So that is when Greenland opened up and the Greenlandic women started to wear American dresses and um, they only, some of them wore the dress, national dresses uh, still, but, but many of the young Greenlanders uh, started to buy some dresses and shoes and all of things uh, from the American fashion industry. And that is the time when the Greenlandic word 
meaning national dress, Kalashisut, entered the um, um, dictionary for the first time. So it's around at that point that the Greenlandic uh, women dress became the national costume. Today, we only use them when we, for example, uh, when the children are starting in school, first day of school, or when we baptize our children or when we get married, but also in funerals. Some also wear them um, National Day, for example, 21st of June. So they, so they would wear sort of perhaps more Americanized dress for their everyday life from that point on, and then sort of keep, keep the, the national dress for uh, special days or... Yes, and then the women started to work at uh, different fish factories, for example, and the sewers became... Um, there were not many sewers around that time, so the Greenlandic national dress was very uh, fragile uh, during the globalization. And many of the Greenlandic populations thought that the Greenlandic dress was about to disappear. So they, in, I think it was in the 80s when they started to, to, to talk about uh, making a national dress, national costume dress school. So you can learn how to make your own national dress. And it started in 2012 in Sisimut. And they have around 15 women uh, graduating every second year now. So, And it, is there still a sort of demand for it? Yes, there is a big demand. Um, but there are also some women who wear Greenlandic designs instead to show their Greenlandicness or maybe wear a pearl bead instead and using earrings where you can see it's from Greenland. So there are different types of dresses today. Could you explain a little bit about regional variation in relation to dress? Yeah, we have three different dresses. The, the main one called Galahisut, it means uh, national costume. It is worn by the women living in Ubernavik in North Greenland and down to Nanortelik to South Greenland. And this is the West Greenlandic national costume we are talking about. And that is, um, I think that is why I also chose to write about the national, uh, West Greenlandic national dress because it is the one who has been changed the most since we had the contact with the Europeans. And the other one is Amnadud. Uh, it's called Amnadud, and it is from Thule, North Greenland. And it's quite different than the West Greenlandic because they use fox in their pants, uh, and we use sealskin. And they have uh, white long uh, boots uh, with no, nothing on them. Um, and the third one is uh, from the East Greenlandic, from East Greenland, and it is it is called the East Greenlandic uh, dress and they have um, it's called a mat where you can put your baby on the back and they have only three different colors of pearls they have white blue and red and we have all different kinds of colors in our national uh, dress in West Greenland so those are the, are the three main dresses of Greenland you've mentioned those sort of 
more or less three regions. Could you say a little bit about uh, the the language of Greenland? Is that along similar lines to those three regions or is it different? I mean, we all have uh, different dialects, uh, but we also have three different not languages, we don't call them languages, but we call them dialects. And it's the East Greenlandic dialect and the uh, North Greenland Tule dialect. And then we have the West Greenlandic language, um, but we have different dialects in different areas as well. So, but we can understand each other. Um, Maybe now we, could you explain what languages you're comfortable in? Yeah. Because that's also maybe a bit more complicated than a, a monolingual culture? In everyday life, I talk Greenlandic. I talk Greenlandic at home with my children and with my husband and some of my colleagues, but we also talk Danish and English is my third language. So yeah, I, I mainly talk Greenlandic. But your, your academic career, I saw that your PhD was in Danish. Yes. Um, was that an active choice or did it kind of have to be in Danish and it, it was difficult for it to be in Greenlandic? It's difficult to be in Greenland in Greenlandic because we don't have many PhDs yet who can read and understand Greenlandic. But I could have maybe I could have uh, written it in English as well. But I think I'm more comfortable in writing in Danish still. But. I'm beginning to write um, articles in English as well because there are not many who can understand the Danish language mm. or the Nordic language. And when you teach, what language do you teach in? I te- teach in Greenlandic. Okay. Yes. Um, our department is, I think it's the only department at the university uh, which requires that the students have to learn to speak Greenlandic or to read Greenlandic because we have a lot of Greenlandic texts and we we uh, teach them in the Greenlandic me- uh, language as well so mm. so we can teach in Greenlandic if you want to. I, I've, I've noticed you've also been sort of interviewed about and written about young people using fashion and maybe tattoos and so on and so forth to differentiate themselves as Greenlandic. That's a sort of interesting development. When the green, when some of the Greenlandic young people or, or in general uh, Greenlanders are in the Danish media, for example, or the international media, some of them attempt to wear Greenlandic uh, fashion items or Greenlandic jewelries, but also we see a lot of people who are getting the or reclaiming their tattoos back. So it's very popular at this time. And I, in my research, I found that found out that it was a almost the same happened in the 1970s when Greenland was entering uh, the Home Rule government. But the tattoos first became um, traditional again around 2016, 17, I think. Uh, And we see a lot of Greenlanders having them today. So yeah, but the fashion items, for example, we have a designer called Bibi Chemnitz who who lived in Copenhagen, but she's she's now in Nuuk. And she did a lot of, 
fashion designs using the Greenlandic cultural symbols. Also Nikki Isaksen, who also lives in Copenhagen, uh, she has a brand called Isaksen Design. And they use a lot of those cultural symbols I talked about in the beginning of my PhD, uh, using the women knife, for example, Ulu, or the women hair top, um, or the Greenlandic flag, or the Greenlandic kayak. So we saw a lot of those different symbols in the beginning of two, or maybe in the mid 2005 to two, 2015, 16. And today it's more, they are beginning to use the Greenlandic um, Inuit tattoos as well, uh, or the Greenlandic flag. Do yeah. you Do you know some of the reasons why it's become maybe more popular over the last 10, 15 years to, for people to seek to express themselves. Yeah, I think it's part of this whole independence discourse we have today. Um, the Greenlandic designers started around 2002, uh, the first ones. And it was around that time when Greenland was uh, trying to regain or receive self-government, and we had that in 2009. And I think they are trying to reclaim their identity, uh, the Inuit identity, but also all of this process of trying to get independence. Maybe that's one of the reasons, I, I, I'm not sure, but, but we have a lot of young activists um, who also uh, use the social media to, to express themselves and so on. It's interesting that you sort of noticed those two sort of waves, if you like, in the 70s when there was sort of home rule and then in the noughties when it, um, it became self-government. So yes, so maybe this latest wave might be followed by something even more radical, but um, whether whether tattoos can have that part of be part of that political movement um, will be interesting to see. Yeah, it is. It is very inter interesting, um, and it's also uh, two thousand twenty one was the three hundred years of when Hans Egil first came to Greenland, and there was a big debate in the media on how we ha we could handle that and what is going on for the next 50 years and so on. So it is a big uh, movement, but sometimes it's noisier, sometimes it's not so loud. And how did you feel about the whole 300 years since Hans L? Because there's been so much interest in the Danish media. I was doing some field work under those different uh, debates we had in the summer. Uh, and there were some young people who who uh, threw red painting at the statue of Hansegel and all of this debate on whether the statue should be moved or not be moved or did, should we celebrate the colonialism and all of these things. So it was very interesting to follow uh, as a researcher. And but one of the main things I I was thinking about a lot of things is said that Hans Egil was um, it is the reason why 
we don't have our, our Inuit religion, for example, it's because of Hanseid and so on and so on. But we forget the Moravians because we have many cultural traditions from the Moravians and no one talks about them. I mean, we have the star, the Moravian star um, in Greenland. We have the different colors uh, in our national costume, uh, the West Greenlandic national costume, who came from, or, or which came from the Moravian social control and all of these things that we don't talk about. The Moravians were the, the, the German sort of religious group that came around a little bit later than Hans Elge. Yeah, the Moravians came to Nuuk in 1733 and left Greenland in 1900. So they were in Greenland in 167 years. And many of those cultural traditions we have during holidays, for example, Christmas holidays, is from the Moravians and we don't talk about that. I'd just for a moment like to go back to the picture of Dorothea. She was probably part of the youthful uh, rebellion of the in the 1800s, as, as, as you could compare her, I suppose, to the people that sort of get Greenlandic tattoos today and that she went against her parents. Um, I mean, were there lots of stories like that when you were researching your, your PhD? No, unfortunately not, because all of the Greenlandic literature from the 1860s uh, is written of men. So we have no Greenlandic women literature besides Sinerink, who was a Danish woman who grew up in Greenland and could talk Greenlandic. Besides Sinerink, we don't have anything. There are not, not many histories of the ones like Dorothea, but a Danish soldier, Carl Emil Plume, he was in Nuuk, 1863 to 64 and see he wrote the book in 1865 and you can read about Dorothea because he met her. Plume visited um, the Paulson family in Sartor and he wrote about her. She was so beautiful. Uh, you could not see that she was an Eskimo. Uh, she was so small and but she had her pale skin looking like a Dane, but her small feet and her small hands uh, looked like she was an Eskimo. That, that was the description of her. But he, he wrote that, he, that Dorothea was one of the most beautiful women in Nuuk and everyone asked for her hand, but she said no and then married a Greenlandic hunter. Mm. Yeah. Great. What a great story. And, and I guess you've you've hit on another point that I wanted to ask about was this whole reclaiming of traditionally women's handicraft, um, which has often been separated from serious art, if you like, which has been dominated by men. I mean, did that influence you to in any way to choose this subject? I think it did. I really love those um, stories about different women who, who talked or wrote back in the media or showed themselves uh, as a strong woman and so on. And I was also thinking about the national dress or the West Greenlandic dress 
because it's very, very colorful. The different pearl beads, but also all of those flowers we have on the dress. Maybe it's very colorful because the women couldn't say anything in the public back then. And they used their dress to communicate. Um, but I don't, I don't know because we don't have any written uh, books or literature or uh, women writing in the newspaper back then. We have one woman woman who wrote in 1886, but she didn't um, write her name, so it says anonymous. You have been listening to an interview with Rosa Rosin, with me, Nicola Whitcomb, editor of Nordics Info. It was recorded in December 2020, and it's the second episode in the latest podcast series from Knowledge on the Nordics, the Nordics Uncovered Critical Voices from Greenland. Don't forget that you can find links to everything we talked about on Nordics Info on the podcast page. Please look out for the next podcast in this series, which will be with Indigenous Arctic archaeologist Kirstina Aibu Müller. This podcast was produced by the team behind the research dissemination website Nordics Info, which is based at Aarhus University in Denmark. Thanks go to the University Hub, Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World, Renew, of which Nordics Info is a part, and our sponsors, Nordforsk. Mm-hmm.